Welcome to okay. Classic Comics Cavalcade. I'm Jason Sachs. And I'm Eric Hoffman. And we are starting our two-part discussion of The Shadow, published by DC Comics in the 1980s. We're starting with the Howard Chaikin miniseries, and we are talking about the first six issues by Andrew Helfer and Bill Sienkiewicz, and also the seventh issue, which is by Helfer and Marshall Rogers and Kyle Baker. These are some of the most 80s comics I can remember with uh, both the good and the, the bad elements to that. Eric, I know you're a big fan of the, this work. Oh, yes. Yeah, we've um, we've talked about it a few times already. Uh, it, I think mainly because the name ha Andrew Helfer kept coming up in our talks. And uh, this is really the only uh andy helfer i guess ongoing series that he ever really had a hand in mm -hmm. um but we'll get to that yeah let's start with the shaken mini series it is definitely its own thing and definitely especially for its time this is some um, kind of extreme comics this is shaken uh, the full out shaken that we think of today with, uh, well, the first issue starts with, you know, women in G-strings, men in zoot suits, a murder, a suicide, uh, some rather strange ethnic stereotypes, another murder, another murder, you know, uh, it, it kind of goes on and on. It, it, it's very shaken-esque, ends in the uh, foiling of a nuclear attack on New York City, I should say, uh, there will be spoilers for comics that came out over 30 years ago. And yet, uh, I, I love the comic. I thought it was just so fun. It was right. like this, uh, this R-rated crime drama where it starts out with a series of murders and it ends up with kind of the team coming together. There's really nothing like great about this in that like it feels shallow as hell. But it's slick and fun and weird. So a little background. DC was at the time, this is the mid 80s. Uh, they just had quite a bit of success with Batman, Dark Knight Returns, Watchmen, which everybody knows about. Uh, they were trying to uh, expand their catalog, bring in some more adult oriented material that would be similar to those other two titles. Um, they were bringing in a lot of the uh, talent who had, I guess, maybe drifted away from the majors to do more independent spirited or uh, creator own material with, you know, first comics or Eclipse or Kamiko or, you know, some of the upstarts. Um, Shaken had, you know, done a lot of professional work in the 70s for Marvel. Um, and then drifted away, decided to bring his uh, American flag, which is his futuristic dystopian political satire, to First Comics. And it was a pretty, pretty good success, I think, for First. So it was uh, some of Chaikin's best and most popular work up to that time. Absolutely. And, and as far as what I think is Chaikin's artistic successes uh, versus his uh, 
interesting failures because even when shaken fails he always fails interestingly and i think this mm -hmm. shadow comic is an example of failing interestingly <laughs> um it's always worth reading it it's always exciting and fun and like you said it's shallow and there's really not much to it but it's still interesting in and of itself just to see what he's doing and um i don't think he was well i know for a fact that he was not at all really interested in the shadow character so dc at the time had purchased or had um gained the rights to the the charlton characters which of course alan moore used as a basis for his characters in watchmen and and then later they created some ongoing series based on those characters like the question for example with denny o'neill's excellent question series and so this was at the time that this was going on and they also acquired the rights to these Condé Nast characters which is mm -hmm. the shadow and doc savage to a lesser extent the avenger who we'll talk about next week because he comes into play uh, in the later issues of this series, of the ongoing series, not the Shaken miniseries. So uh, he was at, Shaken was asked to come and do this miniseries for DC to sort of, I guess, cash in on this mature readers, you know, um, uh, suggested for mature readers was on the cover at the time. And uh, it was sort of a, um, you know, um, Baxter paper sold primarily in direct markets. So very specific uh, market um, that they were going after adult readers and shaken delivers. I mean, he may not have liked the character, which it's kind of obvious he had no real interest <laughs> no, in no, the Condé Nast character and yeah. he made it his own, but, but he did it in such a way that, um, he did it in such a way that it really sets up the whole Andrew Helfer shadow series uh, in, in a good way. Uh, so there's, there's an irreverence that's taking place here. There's, there's, a, there's irreverence and then there's also uh, just, I guess, ultraviolence and very 80s, you know, uh instead okay so the shadow back in the 40s the character was uh, you know he's kind of like a able to control people's minds through use of this magic ring right so shaken changed it so that it wasn't so much that he was controlling men's minds through this use of this magic ring but it was actually he had telekinetic powers and he was able to control people's minds, you know, through this training that he received at this, um, uh, in, in Shambhala, the secret society, the secret, incredibly technologically advanced society that lived in the mountains of, what is it, Tibet? Yeah. Cut off from the rest of civilization. So uh, he completely retools the whole premise of the shadow. I think it's a lot of fun how he does. I mean, we'll talk about the ways in which he sort of completely jettisons all of the material up to the shot. In the first issue, it's it's he's he's literally clearing house. He's basically mm -hmm. killing off all of the old characters from the shadow pulps who were 
the people who work for the shadow as part of his anti-crime organization, his secret organization that he had. And they're all getting murdered. And it kind of, you know, it kind of reminded me of um, Watchmen in a way, where all of the superheroes are getting murdered and Rorschach is trying to figure out who it is that's behind all of these murders. It seemed to have kind of that equivalence going on. Actually predates Watchmen. Okay, there you go. <laughs> it must have been something in the air. <laughs> See, this is very interesting about the time frame it comes out in. February 1986 is the, the month that the first issue of The Shadow comes out. And it's definitely a transitional time in comics. It's still pre-crisis DC. So we still have the classic versions of Superman and Wonder Woman, etc. DC is very kind of twisted around that same kind of classic old thing they were doing for years. Um, the, uh, Mr. Your friend, Mr. Helfer's Dead Man comes out during the same time frame. But aside from that, comics are, especially from the big two, are pretty conservative. Marvel Epic is pu publishing Moonshadow. Uh, Love and Rockets is in its first few issues at Fantagraphics. Um, by and large, like this is a very avant-garde comic, especially for the time, in that like no one was really playing with this sort of chicken does a few things here. So he he obviously dislikes the shadow and his whole supporting cast, but he finds some interesting hooks here. Because one of the things about the shadow is he's got this kind of group of agents who work for him. And Chicken's obviously really interested in that. He just wants to set them up as his own people and they have their own unique uh, you know, perversions to it. Uh, he also does this really interesting thing with the way he portrays time uh, with the connecting uh, sound effects. And he has each page work as its own unique uh, mini story inside the larger story again and again. His characters also are very, it's interesting because there's a lot to be said about the way he treats his characters, especially his women, because uh, his women are, are strong and weak at the same time. It's this interesting paradox. Uh, extremely sexist, but also uh, kind of sex positive. Uh, but his people are at least more sophisticated than you would find in almost any other comic on the stands those days. In fact, as I look through this screen and I'm uh, at everything else that was released that month, like this literally may have been the most sophisticated portrayal of human beings that was out that month. Uh, maybe in Mage, but Mage is a little, anyway. Uh, so in that way, like Chaikin is really kind of, this is a very avant-garde work. This is very unique. This is very different from what anyone else is delivering. And from that standpoint, you know, now 30 year, 30 plus years on, the comic feels oddly dated. Everything from, you know, the nurse at the hospital, uh, a fake nurse at the hospital in an old uniform to this orientalist view of these, uh, the, sh the shadow's children. But it also has this kind of vitality and energy to it that makes it at least an interesting read. So I have yeah. very mixed feelings on this comic, this Blood and Vengeance miniseries. Well, it's interesting how he takes the masculinity, masculinity uh, of the, you know, the shadow character is this prototypical shaken 
protagonist. Um, he, I mean, I always said that all of Shaken's protagonists, they all look the same. Dominic mm -hmm. Fortune, uh, Reuben Flagg, and now The Shadow, they're all just basically almost carbon copies of each other and how they look. And um, somebody said at one point that they were all, it may have been in the Brandon Costello book, Neon Visions, that all of these all of these uh, protagonists of Shakens are all idealized versions of himself. Mm -hmm. You know, hit what he would be if he could be his own best version of himself, he would be this character. And so in a way, it's kind of like a male fantasy, a, a lot of his comics, uh, in, in, in the sense that uh, you have this masculine viewpoint. Uh, it's always from a, it always seems to be from a male point of view. Uh, but like you said, at the same time, there are also these, female characters who are alternately submissive and dominant mm -hmm. and, and I can't you know and and off, often simultaneously so it's it's a really interesting dynamic and I, I it's something that has always kind of interested me about Shaken's work but also troubled me in a way because I, I can't seem to quite get a foothold with a lot of his characters. His characters seem to be, to me, to be either sort of um, uh, too one-dimensional or they're mercurial, mm -hmm. one or the other. And unfortunately, the shadow here uh, is the protagonist um, uh, who would be Lamont Cranston, although as you come to find out in the comic, it's not actually Lamont Cranston. Yes. It's Ellard. So what had happened was there was a Lamont Cranston. He was this wealthy, uh, I suppose, industrialist, right? And he had uh, this plan to take these bodies of these missionaries out of China and their bodies were full of drugs. And so he enlisted Kent Allard to, who was a pilot, to get these bodies out. And then as it turns out, um, uh, Kent Allard sort of assumed Lamont Cranston's identity uh, through happenstance. We'll get too much into it, but he ended up uh, taking uh, Lamont Cranston's name and fortune and using that as a cover uh, and then going into 1940s society and becoming a crime fighter and pretending that he was Lamont Cranston. So as it turns out, uh, Lamont Cranston reappears in this comic, uh, a much aged man. He's now in a wheelchair. He has created this uh, uh, clone of himself who he calls his son. And he's able to sort of telekinetically control his son so that he can pleasure his much younger wife Mm -hmm. uh, which, which is, is also just so freaking bizarre weird yeah very yeah. weird and uh at the same time he's also and it's never quite made quite clear so the 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 antagonist um his motivations are never really made terribly explicit and i don't know if that's because shaken really didn't have a good idea of it from the get-go or just didn't care uh but he he eventually wants to be able to 
completely um, uh, transfer his mind into the body of his son. And then uh, at the same time, he um, is threatening to destroy. <laughs> I mean, I can't quite connect the dots here as to how things relate, uh, but there's a, a threat of nuclear destruction at, at, at the hands of, of the, uh, the real Lamont Cranston, which is what sort of compels Kent Allard to come back out of hiding from, uh, I guess, self-imposed exile in uh, Shambhala. That and that his uh, henchmen are being murdered. I don't know. I, it's one of those comics where I'm always kind of mystified by character motivations. Uh-huh. Absolutely. There doesn't seem right. You know, I, I'll give you an example. Um, there's this real there's this character that that shaken introduces uh it's a female character she's the daughter of two of his henchmen from way back oh kent allard by the way when he reappears he hasn't aged at all and it's they never explain how that is that he he manages to do that it's just some sort of esoteric mystic shambhala trick that um you know it, yeah. It's just one of those like easy explanations that Shaken leans on all throughout this miniseries. Classically and, uh, Shaken. Classically yeah. Shaken. Right. And well, there's this character. So he introduces this character, Mavis, who's this kind of bombshell redhead daughter of these previous shadow henchmen. And she's, you know, this extremely intelligent, sophisticated sort of independent 1980s woman but she's also real quick to hop in the sack with um kent allard um you know after he throws these like incredibly like just misogynistic lazy come-ons at her mm -hmm. <laughs> you know it's just you know it's I don't know. I it's it's very it, it's like he wants to pull you in, he can't resist himself pushing you away. Chicken does this thing all throughout his work where he wants to be your friend, but he also wants to be the coolest guy in the room. Or he wants to get readers interested in what's happening, but he keeps wanting to undercut it. And that's part of what makes him so interesting, is that his characters are flawed and their flaws are reflections of him and everything about his work seems to be in tension with the story he's trying to tell and you see it throughout this book right as you leave through it you you see page after page panel after panel that's like composed really beautifully where character work is really intriguing where moments just really work for you but you got to put in so much work to put all the pieces together and to move past a lot of the weirdly dated approaches and attitudes characters have, the way people treat themselves really shittily, treat each other just poorly, uh, that you just don't quite know what to make of it. You know, at the same time, you, you put yourself in the mindset of, you know, reading this in 1986 or so, this is so far beyond he, uh, anything else that was coming out 35 years ago that he's just playing, yeah, 35 years ago. He's just playing with, with these concepts that other people will refine down to something a lot more uh, basic. 
So in a very strange way, he's like a Kirby for his own sort of comic here. Right. Where no one else has done this sort of thing. The closest maybe is something like Moonshadow, which is a completely different book. Uh, so no one really has any conception of what to do here. And as such, it's so radical for its time that it's both really dated and really intriguing. Right. Well, there's, yeah, dated, definitely. There's a lot of very dated things about this comic. And in a way, it's kind of fun to read it now because you get a little bit of a, I don't know, retro kick to it. I mean, like the the whole the whole subplot with the with the punk scene yeah uh, that comes into play um you know in in the third issue the fact that the shadow now instead of firing these antique pistols he's using uzis which is such a 1980s you know uh-huh um convention um or cliche i guess um the the threat of a nuclear you know a nuclear bomb um it's very 80s um well, and like let's talk about the nuclear bomb there because i think it's emblematic of so much else of this book right he introduces it in a weird way very early on on uh page 31 of my collected edition for example um the allard clone is seducing allard's wife and there's a weird image of a nuclear explosion behind them which is right freaking bizarre yeah she has posters of nuclear bombs going off and then there's another one later on of hiroshima mana more yeah (laughs) i mean yeah and then we don't really actually have the the threat of the nuclear bomb introduced until issue three right because it's like chicken just kind of gets around to it after a while now we get a lot of really fun espionage stuff in issue two but like yeah you get all the backstory about how yeah but this feels very improvised yes it feels like he's throwing a lot of pieces up in the air and kind of just seeing where where they're going to land and again there's not necessarily anything wrong with that it's kind of actually fun for that uninhibited element to it but it feels very loose and i guess you could say it feels very kind of punk rock i suppose (laughs) in the very 1980s sense of it yeah yeah um it's you know, there's another, I'll give you another example of sort of an 80s, um, it, how it's dated and yet also sort of ahead of its time in its way is that character Lorelai, who's in an iron lung. I mean, nobody's yeah. in iron lungs anymore, right? And she's also a, um, a phone sex. She, she's, the, she's the head of the communications for the whole shadow organization, but in her spare time, she does phone sex. Um, which is also, you know, very 80s. <laughs> yeah. And um, uh, it, it's, so it's dated, but then in the same sense, it's like, well, geez, nobody has ever, like, in comics, done a character who was independent, free-spirited, plucky young lady who was also, you know, and head of communications for a, a secret anti-crime organization and also a phone sex operator in a lung. <laughs> uh, you know? Like, I... Yeah, I mean, to me, that's I think just we're putting our finger on the strengths and the weaknesses. Yeah, that's it exactly. This right. is why it's both great and terrible. 
<laughs> yeah. You know, and these are characters that we'll, we'll I think we're going to transition to the Helfer stuff here fairly soon. So I can say that these are the characters I think that Helfer was able to take all of the strengths of these comics and wisely dispose of their weaknesses, in my opinion. Lorelai is an excellent example of that, or or the character of Mavis. I mean, he he took some of the shaken introduced characters and really foregrounded them and and really expanded them and I think did more interesting things with them and treated them more seriously and respective respectively than Shaken does. And you know, and then he also introduced characters of his own, which we'll also get into. Um, but I think I, that's a really good way of saying it though, Eric. It's like he really it feels like Shaken just doesn't really respect these characters. No. No. He wants to have them be screwed around and having their odd adventures, but nothing ever really connects because he doesn't seem to connect to them at all. Right. Yeah. Or he I doesn't mean, he think said, them through. He said in this interview, which they, for some reason, published at the beginning of the the edition that I have, which is the, the old uh, Warner Brothers paperback that came out in 87. Okay. They reprinted this. I don't know if your version has this interview that Joe Orlando did with them. Oh, I do have that. Yeah. Yeah. And he says, um, you know, uh, Dick, uh, now I never know how to pronounce his name. Is it Giordano? I think so. Okay. Dick Giordano, DC's editorial uh, director, approached you to do The Shadow, right? This is Joe Orlando's asking. We'll talk about Joe Orlando again in a minute, talking about Andrew Helfer, but. Um, it was Dick Giordano who approached you to do the shadow, right? And you were intrigued by it, but only if you could do it your way. And uh, he's uh, shaken says, well, the matter of fact is I didn't come out and say, no, 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 only if I can play with my ball. No, no, I simply stated what I was intending to do. If they didn't like what I was going to do, I wasn't going to do the book. Mm -hmm. Joe, so you wrote a letter intention that you would update the material. Howard, yes, Joe. And you felt it was... And you felt it was commercially important to update it, which means bring it into the present, not have it take place in the in the 40s and have it be a period piece. Howard, you bet. That's my job. My job is not to do comic books. It's to sell books for my client. <laughs> and now to me, that, There's another that sort of represents this kind of, I guess, um, capitalist... 80s sort of in a way it's kind of punk because he's basically saying like you know nothing is that reverent that i mean this is a comic book character i mean how how seriously are we really going to take this let's have fun with it but at the same time it's also kind of like a alex p keaton from family ties sort of let's you know uh shaken was you know the 70s uh comic book creator who was you know, in the 70s, I think he had artistic pretensions. And then I think the 80s rolled along and he got a little, uh, I, what, what's the, what's the word I'm looking for? He, I think he got a little jaded mm -hmm. about it and uh, began to sort of treat doing comics like it was a commercial enterprise. And it is a commercial enterprise. I mean, to a, to a degree, right? But I think well, he got but, to a yeah, point where I think oh, he, sorry. 
Well, I think he got to a point where he sort of foregrounded the commercialism. And I don't know where that and when that happened with him. But to me, the shadow and for he did the, uh, what was it? The um, Blackhawk series right after this. And to me that these, those comics, they were both dealing with uh, older, you know, established characters that uh, he was brought on board to sort of bring up to date or, or make current. And I, I feel like that that point of view that Shaken had where he was just like, well, I'm just making commercial product. And I don't know how sincere he is when he says that. But I do get the feeling that he is sincere when he says that when I read those comics like The Shadow or Blackhawk. It's just... I feel like he's just sort of, well, this is what people come to expect from a Howard Shaken comic, so this is what they're going to get. And it's kind of like he's doing an imitation of himself, uh, whereas with American Flag, you could sense there was a real heart and interest behind it, and there was a real love and admiration for the characters, even if he was using the characters as mouthpieces for you know, uh, various uh criticisms that he wanted to make about capitalism or about uh you know the 1980s you know through the through the prism or dealing with current issues in the 80s using a science fiction trapping which is you know that's one of the great things about science fiction is that you can comment on the times that you're living in and you can do it in such a way that it's indirect you know you can use that um genre to because it's often futuristic, you can use that in a way to comment on the society that you're living in in an indirect way. And you can be more honest or you can be more open or you can do things that you wouldn't normally be able to get away with if you were just making, you know, some dry, esoteric, nonfiction argument about the way things are, you know. You can do it in a way that's entertaining is what I'm trying to say. Yeah, I don't think this is all hack work though. There's so much of Chaykin's heart in this too. And this this comic checks off so many of the classic Chaykin motifs. Moving beyond the sex and violence, which are up front, there's also the strong element of, like a lot of Chaykin's characters go through some sort of transformation where they're seen by society as being one thing and they become another thing. In this case, it's the shadow as being this relic of the 1930s who kind of comes back to the 80s and they exercises a new a renewal of his life. Blackhawk is a lot about uh, basically the, the American immigrant experience. And actually, we see the American immigrant experience here also through the Shadow Sons and their slow assimilation into society, something that I think Helfer does a lot more interestingly. Um, and it's something that, that that's an element that goes all the way through Chaykin's more recent image work, where it's even more explicitly spelled out that these are kind of broken men who find a chance to redeem their lives by staying true to themselves, by being uh, the assholes that are within themselves in a, in a strange way. And he also is one of the only creators who seems to love playing with an enormous cast of characters and just have just setting setting all their pool balls in motion, so to speak, and seeing where putting their billiard balls all in motion, so to speak, and seeing where they all land. Because this book is sprawling with characters. 
There's more characters per page in Blood and Vengeance than maybe any comic ever created. It's not a superhero comic. And each of these characters does have their own distinct energy, beat, uh, attitude. And it's to Chicken's credit that he really makes an effort to have all the characters be different. They may not all be as fleshed out as we'd like them to be, but they are all unique and they all do kind of pop on the page and they all dress pretty nicely. Yeah. And you could, you could make the argument, although I think it's thin, that by taking this out of time character from the thirties, who's been, who's been more or less in hiding for decades and then putting him back into what was then modern, you know, 1980s um, society that you could use that sort of out of touchness of that character or that old fashioned quality to that char character to make commentary on, I don't know, the how things have changed uh, between men and women or um, how things have changed with uh, the makeup of society, gender roles, uh, you know, um, all of all of the things that have changed so dramatically from the 1930s, 1940s, and up until the 1980s, but I don't feel like he really exploits that in any meaningful way. No, it's just all. I think he's also constrained by the amount of pages he has and the, his own ambitions. Right. I mean, I think right. it tries to, and it bleeds in a little bit here and there but it there's an aloofness to it that just it, it almost makes it seem kind of forced like he feels obligated to to make those contrasts and he doesn't really to me do it in any kind of like interesting or funny way it's just kind of an aside here and there and oh look this is an interesting word to use for this because there's a lot going on here, a lot of intense emotion. The characters have a lot of complexity to them in their own kind of small way. Right. Uh, but it does feel a little aloof. Yeah. But it, it's also it's a paradox. It also sort of undermines that, that potential um, uh, contrast by using that out of time character by having him come from a uh, society, Shambhala, which is so advanced technologically. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I mean, they've got flying cars, for example. His two mixed race sons, who are half Anglo and half Asian, um, fly around in that hover car, right? <laughs> so, I, I mean, it, it, it's kind of like he. I don't, I, I don't know. I, I just feel like there's a potentiality there that's just constantly undermined by his own ambitions. Okay. So a year after the final issue of The Shadow Appeared by Jaken, we got the first issue of the new Shadow comic. I, I know you're a big fan of this whole run. What do you think specifically of Bill Sienkiewicz taking on the title and how those first that first six issue storyline works? Helfer was the editor of the Shaken miniseries. 
So the Shaken miniseries was a, a big success for DC. So they decided to do the ongoing series. And Dick Giordano asked Helfer to write the series as he had edited the uh, miniseries. So, um, and Helfer really didn't have many writing credits before he started work on this comic. He had done a few, um, he did like this Robotech Defenders miniseries and he had uh, done some writing for Atari Force and a few one-off stories and in like a horror anthology, Unexpected and a, and a couple of other things, but really nothing substantial. Uh, so I think that was quite a, quite a, a risk and, uh, and maybe um, uh, a, a belief in his talent on the part of Giordano that he would would have him follow on the heels of Shaken, who was a really uh, well-established comics writer and artist at the time. So uh, that, to me, maybe illustrates why Sienkiewicz was brought on <laughs> mm -hmm. as an artist, because I think Helfer was such an unknown and uh, an unknown quantity at the time. He, I mean, he was pretty well established as an editor. I mean, he had done like, well, he had done the Dead Man miniseries. And I think maybe on the strength of that and some interesting correlations between the shadow uh, characters as it was set up by Shaken and uh, what happened with uh, Dead Man, which was that four issue series that was illustrated by Jorge Garcia uh, Lopez, a very underrated artist uh, who had done some work with Helfer um, on Atari Force of all things. Uh, and interestingly enough, Marshall Rogers and Kyle Baker, who we'll talk about in a, in a few minutes, had also done artwork on Atari Force uh, with Helfer. So he was somebody who definitely um, liked the same, liked to use the same stable of artists. Um, I think he probably would have Helfer maybe uh, would have had. Kyle Baker or Marshall Rogers be the primary artist on the shadow from the beginning. But I think that Sienkiewicz was brought in because Sienkiewicz at the time, he was extremely hot, hot on fire, right? I think that that was probably, ironically enough, as crazy as his artwork is on this and as freewheeling as it is and experimental as it is, uh, you know, it's just like this crazy mixture of Neil Adams and uh, Ralph Steadman you know, um, at that time. I think that was their safest bet, having him illustrate it, because that was just like instant sale, right? Oh, Bill Sienkiewicz has drawn this? All right. I'll pick it up. Go... Those beautiful covers, painted yeah. covers that he did. I mean, it really pops. I mean, the, those covers that he did are just incredible. Typical, I mean, just typically incredible Sienkiewicz in the 80s, just pure energy and uh, ex uh, completely unexpected, completely original uh, artwork in a, in a way. Um, it's still original. It's still completely unique. So yeah. you're dancing around something, <laughs> which is your feelings on Sienkiewicz's interior artwork. And I have thoughts on that too, which I was gonna talk about, especially in context of the Marshall Rogers issue. But I, so I'll, I'll, I'll put my cards on the table here rather than yeah. play can't play cute. 
I'm looking through the, the book now, as one is wont to do when you're talking about it, and I see scene after scene, moment after moment. That's really cool, really interesting. For example, just in the first issue, we have this, the, the comic starts with this crazy off-kilter scene in the hospital that throws you off, but also intrigues you. Where there's like crazy men and this enormous nurse and then a guy stumbling through a doorway and you know beautiful uh like silhouette images like everything is just thrown at the wall we flip the page and there's our friend in the iron lung with her heart-shaped word balloons and her monkeys attending to her and uh she's she's running all everything all together and then you get to about page was page 12 where we see the shadow reappear 16, excuse me. And it's just a horrific vision of the shadow as this literal like demon from hell. Looks like something out of a horror, the worst horror comic you can ever find. So again and again and again, and you can go through every issue and find moments like this. You know, uh, issue five, for example, had, like starts with this incredible explosion scene, confrontation. There's this really cool stuff with the with the, the creatures of the light. There's a fight in the United Nations in issue five that's just weird and exciting. So it all looks great, but his storytelling skills are not up to the task. So hard to tell what's going on. And so I found myself in this very strange position of kind of getting what Helfer's getting at with his work, but he's too inexperienced to be able to really have it make sense in a way that's really transparent to a reader, but also like loving the individual images that Sienkiewicz is creating. So I'm not sure if I loved it or hated it. I just found it to be profoundly different from anything else I had seen before. And I wonder if that's similar to your experience. I remember when I bought the first issue of The Shadow, when it came out, August of 87, I was too young to be reading this comic and somehow I got a hold of an issue (laughs) (laughs) issue and the main reason that I um grabbed it is well I mean first of all that logo and I honestly I don't know who designed the logo uh it's the same logo that was used for the for the uh shaken miniseries but uh it it's incredible. I, I it's kind of got like a art decoy, um, but sleek uh, and modern uh, feel to it, and it's just absolutely brilliant logo. It's probably uh, a, then, t- a Todd Klein, probably yeah. was kind of the best uh, logo designer of his time. Do you know that was Todd Klein? I know because I know he did the. So Bob Lapan did the lettering for the interiors but it wouldn't surprise me if that was Todd Klein because he was I, uh, who did the miniseries let's see Ken Bruzenak anyway yeah because that was that's who Shaken always paired with so I grabbed it I I had no you know interest really in the shadow character I, and at the time I hadn't read the Shaken miniseries. So there's a sort of a helpful uh, summary. Uh, they don't really make reference to the miniseries 
uh, in the comics. So I, I think as a kid, I probably didn't really have much of an understanding of what was going on. <laughs> Especially I was, you know, almost 11 years old when I read this. So, um, you know, the, the summary of, of sort of bringing you up to speed that there was this Lamont Cranston, but it wasn't actually Lamont Cranston, it was actually Ken Allard, and then the guy who was Lamont Cranston reappeared and had this clone son and uh, threatened the shadow with a nuclear warhead, but the shadow foiled the threat and um, killed him. And then, and then it, this guy who's walking through the door, who everybody thinks is the shadow, is actually the clone of Lamont Cranston. So it's just like loopy, right? And, and actually, um, I will say while I'm on the subject that I, it's a complete mistake on Helfer's part to even have to bring in the clone in these first two issues because it it's just too confusing and it's completely unnecessary. He could have gone right into the main antagonist, which is this, we'll get into this evangelist, the, uh, the light, um, without, and even Shiwen Khan who comes in uh, later uh, you know, there's just too much. There's too many antagonists going on. There's three antagonists in six issues, mm -hmm. and all done uh, in this, all produced in this Sinkevich style that makes us right. more confused. Right, and then he's got this whole, uh, I don't know, a dozen or more of these shadow underlings, and then he introduces Helfer introduces three or four more for good measure, and as it turns out, they the ones that he introduces end up being probably the most interesting of them. And then on top of all that, there's all the shadow has become this folk hero and people are dressing in shadow costumes. And right. so like, we're completely like, it's a very, very alienating comic book. Right. So I, I guess what my, my, to get back to your original question, my, when I picked up the comic, I bought it because Sienkiewicz. Sienkiewicz, Sienkiewicz, Sienkiewicz. I, I had been reading uh, his work on New Mutants, um, which is, you know, to this day is still like some of the most bizarre experimental uh, uh, major, I mean, Marvel comics that exist, like the Demon Bear storyline in New Mutants, for example. I mean, it's just, it's like pure, almost pure abstraction at, at times. And, um, so yeah, I, I I bought this because it it's Sienkiewicz and it looked interesting and different from everything else. So that was, I'm sure, what DC was going after, right? That's the audience that they wanted to attract because I don't think on the strength of the storyline or on the strength of the character, they could have sold nearly as many comics uh, without Sienkiewicz involved. And he signed on for these first six issues, and that was it. So they were taking, you know, I think DC was maybe taking um, a gamble. Uh, they were probably, well, I mean, every comic that is published is a gamble, right? To a certain degree. Well, but, I think, I think, and I don't know this for sure, but I wonder if Helfer and Sinkevich were friends and they pitched it together with the idea that don't know. can get it off the ground. I, uh, you know, I feel like Helfer turned in the script and they probably went, this is okay, but we're probably going to need 
to bring somebody in to help push these comics. <laughs> um, because Helfer does take a, a, a few issues to get his footing, uh, in my opinion. These well, they say in issue one that they had Helfer and then they went recruiting for artists. So there you go. Yeah. Helfer suggested Sinkevich. Okay. Yeah, I recall that now. They didn't have an artist lined up. He probably made the suggestion, and I'm sure they probably thought, well. <laughs> well, so that, and, and okay, they made the suggestion. <laughs> Something tells me that he and Sinkevich might have met in the bar and talked this out a little bit, you know? Uh, Could be, yeah. I don't think he would have taken a chance like that without. Uh, you know, them having the conversation. So let's go, let's move ahead a little bit and then come back to this. So I don't yeah. know if you've read, you read Annual Number One, which is illustrated by Joe Orlando. Right, Joe Orlando, yeah. Al Alfredo Acala, definitely yeah. very strong Alfredo Acala on that. Yes. Uh, it shows that Helfer is definitely capable of telling a straightforward, coherent, really entertaining story about these characters. Because you know, the, not with state, notwithstanding like the clash and styles between Orlando and Alcala, uh, this is a very interesting, very entertaining kind of 1930s throwback story that kind of is a what if in a way, because there there was a lot of talk about whether Helper should continue with the with the 1970s or 1980s setting or move it back to the 1930s. Of course, it was another series that was set in the 1930s after this series was uh, ran its course, and that the, the annual to me is successful in a very different way. That the story holds together, the characters are compelling, it brings in some historical figures, and it builds in a way that feels very professional. There's too many words. There's pages where there's too many panels, but. It works in a, it, it. I think it works in a lot more solid way. I agree. Um, you know, Helfer. I will say this: he he definitely was not a great writer until I think um, about midway through the shadow, and then you know he did some other comics that are. Well, for example, like this annual that are extremely well constructed. Uh, he did this one uh, Batman annual that's based around Two-Face, which is just absolutely brilliant. So mm -hmm. he's an extremely inconsistent writer. Although I think, like I said, I think he's consistent in the sense that he's gotten better as he's gone along. Uh, his, his work definitely improved over time. But, um, and it didn't now that I'm thinking of his Judge Dredd miniseries. <laughs> so, no, yeah. he is inconsistent. <laughs> yeah, his Judge Dredd series is not great. It's not good. You know, um, but uh, so, okay, to stay on to stay on subject yeah. with the annual, for example, which is an example of him writing an, ex an extremely uh, uh, tightly constructed and entertaining and interesting uh, comic and doing it in you know with the uh, maximum amount of economy he covers a lot of ground and like you said there's maybe it's too wordy in places or the, it, it can get a little crowded at times and that's you could say the same thing about 
the whole shadow run. I mean, it is very wordy. Um, and that works both for and against it, as we'll get into. But um, the the annual, I think it benefits from the Orlando art. And like I said, he and Joe, uh, he, he got hired to DC under Joe Orlando. And he was an assistant to Joe Orlando on the special project. So he was doing like these Supergirl Honda crossovers and all these like cross marketing campaign things and uh, kids books that featured DC superheroes. So he was doing all of these kind of like um, uh, probably uh, a lot of work and very little artistic, you know, um, pleasure out of having done it. So um, I think when the time came that he was graduating into writing his own comics and doing all those things, he brought a lot of the people along with him who maybe he had edited their material, but I don't think he had, so, you know, that he had a relationship with Joe Orlando in this case. Uh, so he could get somebody with that cachet to do yeah. this. Well, that was his editor. Right? Annual. And um, Sienkiewicz, I don't think he ever edited any of Sienkiewicz's stuff. I, I wasn't able to make any of those connections. But... Oh, it's Mike Carlin who was the editor, excuse me. Yeah, Carlin edited the the ongoing series of of the Shadow, so I think he was helped along maybe by his um, working with Joe Orlando and Joe Orlando having an encyclopedic and uh, masterclass understanding of how comics work, um, and so that benefited his story. Maybe helped him tighten it up a bit by that collaboration. Uh, with somebody of that of that you know I guess um, caliber uh, Sienkiewicz maybe was probably the wrong choice just because if you're gonna work with Bill Sienkiewicz I mean you really do have to be like a Frank Miller to um, give him give Sienkiewicz the ability to be Bill Sienkiewicz but also at the same time be coherent <laughs> right and to um i guess uh uh to understand sinkevich's um probably extreme visual uh eccentricities and to use them in a way that's beneficial to the story and i think in this case maybe sinkevich was operating on a different level than Helfer. And so it doesn't quite coalesce into like an art, a successful artistic collaboration, in my opinion. It almost seems like they're working on two separate comic books in a way that Helfer and Kyle Baker don't. I mean, they seem to be totally simpatico to the point where I feel like I read a Kyle Baker comic like um, The Cowboy Wally Show, which, which uh, came out around the same time that he was working on the shadow and actually I think it predated his work on the shadow but it got kicked around for so long that it finally only got published sort of toward the tail end of that but uh I'll read like the cowboy wally show and I'll read the shadow and to me it's like I, I have to wonder did Kyle Baker collaborate with Helfer on these plots or on this dialogue because it's so very much feels like a Kyle Baker comic 
And we'll um, talk more about Baker next next week. week. Yeah. So I, I, am, I guess I, that I'm, I'm very happy that you agree with with my gut feeling also about Sienkiewicz because I found it to be a chore to work through these issues and more of a chore to work through the Sienkiewicz issues than it was to read the Jake and Minnie series. Yeah. Jakin was always always kept you at arm's length, but he made effort if you paid attention to, to tell what was going on. Sienkiewicz in this work, you're right. It's like you're reading two separate comics and their intention with each other. And it just I just found it to be so much more of a chore to get through than I hoped it would be. There's just right. it, it it feels I'm disciplined. But again, you look at it page by page and it's gorgeous. Right. Yeah, the coloring by Richmond Lewis mm -hmm. is amazing. And it's the, I mean, the, you can't, you, you, you can't criticize, I mean, the, 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 the absolutely brilliant lettering that Stankevich does all throughout. That's Bob LePan. Well, I mentioned some that of that, yeah, I, love, I understand it says Bob LePan, but some of that lettering is Sienkiewicz. <laughs> well, so the reason I know this is LePan is because, yeah, some of it's Sienkiewicz. Yeah, some of it's Sienkiewicz, LePan did right. the same, a lot of the same thing when he was doing the Justice League comics at the time. And he does this thing that I find so enjoyable, excuse me, which, yeah, and yeah, obviously like in the scenes at the end of uh, issue five, the the sound effects are awesome, Kevich. Excuse me. Right. But uh, LaPan's oversized word balloons kind of give the work a little bit of space to breathe. That's kind of refreshing. Yes. Yeah. It's interesting you mentioned Justice League because that we talk about Helfer and that Justice League. You know, he was editor of the Justice League of America toward the tail end of its uh, initial run. And then of course there was the post-crisis uh, Dematius, the famous post-crisis Dematius Giffen and uh, Maguire uh, initially at first, um, Justice League, America International and all the different titles that it had along the way. Uh, and Helfer was the editor of that series as well. And he was the initial person who put that project together. And it really has a Helfer feel to it that kind of reverence the humor i think giffen and dematius sort of took it to a whole other level but mm -hmm. um there's definitely that kind of um humor at work in this comic and you know where you can with an artist like kevin mcguire for instance was a on that series was a brilliant choice because of his ultra realism and facial expressions and all of the things that he could do as an artist to sort of complement the dialogue that was going on. But here, the dialogue almost seems to be like, Sienkiewicz doesn't seem to be like, he doesn't seem to be in tune with the dialogue at yeah. all. And that it's that same kind of dialogue that you get in Justice League. It's, you know, it's kind of snarky and, ironic and everything and it's funny but i i don't really generally associate sinkevich with doing funny books yeah it's just not his forte it just doesn't work and i felt such a feeling of relief 
and actually Pure Joy reading issue seven, the story of Harold in Washington, DC, uh, where or Harold goes to Washington to use the actual title of it, where the straightforward storytelling and the way Alfred builds the story and the just joyful joining of uh, the, the, the really nice art combination of Marshall Rogers and Kyle Baker just makes the story, it gives the story a chance to breathe. It feels open. It pulls you along. The storytelling choices that are made all along the way are interesting. And it's just a very fun story. It's not the greatest thing ever, but it's got this element of happiness and fun to it. It just feels light. You know, it has our main character climbing the Empire State Building like King Kong. I mean, you can't get <laughs> lighter than that. Right. And so, uh, like, I, I can't even put in words how much, like, relief I felt. Even the coloring is pastels and it's calm. So we've gone from this intense kind of darkness to something a lot more light and, and loose and bright. Uh, it's like going from a dark crime-ridden city into the suburbs for a day. Yeah, and it. the other thing is that it's not terribly crowded. I mean, the, the first six issues, like I said, there's so much going on. There's so many plot points along the way. There's so many different characters to juggle and follow, so many different motivations at play. There's so much noise in the artwork. I mean, it's good artwork, like we said, but it's a lot of noise that mm -hmm. Sienkiewicz throws at you. The colors are are brilliant, like like I said, Richmond Lewis, but they're kind of oppressive, you know? Yeah. Kind of like, they're almost too upfront. I mean, they're almost too dom uh, dominating of the story, you know? So as so like in something like uh, Batman Year One, which Richmond Lewis also colored uh that it was very effective in that because that was kind of the artwork in that was by Mazzuccelli and it was kind of expressionistic but with Sienkiewicz it almost overwhelms the page because there's just too much activity taking place it does uh, so there's just so when we get to Marshall Rogers who I think you and I agree Marshall Rogers is a Absolutely fantastic comic book artist. Yes. Um, second to none understanding of visual story storytelling uh, and how to how to compose a page and how to um, keep keep the you know he had a cinematic understanding of how comic book page works. So his his artwork here is just moves along at a steady pace the the character expressions are believable unlike you know uh Sienkiewicz where it's just like a Ralph Stedman like I said Ralph Stedman Neil Adams mishmash yeah it's, it's, just... it's fear and loathing in the shadow comic yeah. <laughs> right fear and loathing right uh here it's just um clear uh it's it's on point the there's nothing sort of extraneous about this. It's a focused story that essentially deals primarily with this young boy uh, who 
you know, decides he, you know, he's being picked on at school and he decides that he's going to assassinate the president mm -hmm. to sort of assert his, that he would, he could be a hero by doing that. It's prescient in a way, I think, as social commentary having to do yeah. with, you know, kids with guns and guns in school and bullying becoming such a endemic problem in, in schools. So, you know, it's, it kind of reminded me in a way, I mean, of like a really good, like Steve Gerber comic. Reads a little bit like an issue of man thing. Yeah. So it's just a tight little comic. And then of course the shadow, as you said, he's, he's not even really in the issue at all. I mean, some of the shadow underlings come in on the periphery uh, throughout the comic, but they don't really interact in it on um, you know, an important level, at least until the end. And even then, it, they're kind of on the periphery. I mean, I don't think they really change the course of events in a substantial way, right? They're just kind of almost audience to to what's taking place here yeah oh the boy kill, the boy essentially ends up killing himself right accident. right yeah uh so, so, yeah so to me this is this is this one issue and, I, and i've read you know a, a few critical reactions to helfer's work on the shadow and this issue is always generally held up as probably the best issue of the entire run mm-hmm I would agree. So let's close by answering a simple question, which is, is the shadow a hero, a villain, or in between? You well, can answer in context of Chicken or in context of Helfer. He's got those red eyes. <laughs> we were just talking about Grendel and how the red eyes are, a, you know, generally a... a sign of possession by the devil right i don't think that's the case here uh it's sort of meant to illustrate the his supernatural abilities and the fact that he's kind of a menacing figure um he's to me he's like all of these pulp figures it's 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 you know without copping out i mean it's a morally ambiguous character um he's got this code that he's following that may or may not be beneficial to society. Uh, the, that's the question, right? Is what he's doing, is it, is it um, for the benefit of the greater good or is it just for his own benefit? And I think Shaken would probably, as Shaken portrays him, he's, I think, he he's he's kind of like a like a judge in a way. Mm -hmm. He's meant to be this kind of um, conservative type figure who's maybe out of touch with the moral ambiguities of mo the modern world. So he's probably the last person who should be passing judgment on people, right? I think with Helfer, he's definitely portrayed as a more as more of a, a villain as an anti-hero yeah i like that because he's he's like the punisher right 
spirit of vengeance. He's angry all the time. Carries machine guns. Dressed in a black cloak and a giant hat. If you saw this man walking around, you would be, well, you'd be thinking he's someone, he was someone involved in the capital insurrection, I suppose. <laughs> and he's carrying, you know, the morals of a man who grew up in the 1920s. Right. He's, he is nothing. There's nothing modern about this man. He's from a hundred years ago. Right. And because of that, he's to me, uh, uh, someone who started as a hero in his own kind of context, but taking out of the, the context, he's become, a, he's, he reads more and more like a character completely out of time. Now, I'm not sure what newer writers have done with him, like our friend Matt Wagner. So we have, haven't read Wagner's take on him, but at least as, Jacob just seems to hate the guy. Jacob just thinks he's an asshole. Yeah. Who occasionally stumbles onto doing the right thing. I think Halford just is kind of annoyed by him, but seems to think he's all, he seems to think he's all right. At least as a lead character. He's kind of like reverse cancel culture in a way, like how, you know, like recently with Dr. Seuss, for example, how these people in the past who lived and operated under, you know, racial distinctions that are now outmoded, but at the time were completely acceptable but you know seen from our vantage point now looking back are reprehensible to some or just mm -hmm. insulting to some and so we feel the need to cancel them and get rid of them even though we're sort of holding them to an impossible standard because they're not living in the, the present time yeah. and the shadow seems to be holding us to an impossible standard because we're not living in his time which is the past in a way. So it's like, I think the character is, I think Helfer and Shaken both agree that he's, he may have good intentions, but he's looking at things from a perspective that is putting him at a disadvantage for properly dealing with society as it is on its own terms. And so he's a, he's sort of a flawed hero or anti-hero. I, well, we'll talk about it next week, but definitely as the series goes on, Helfer definitely takes him less and less seriously. I'm really looking forward to talking about that next, <laughs> the next I was 11 or 12 issues, because yeah. um, I have such fond memories of how the series turns out, and I haven't revisited this in a long time. Well, like, I, it's, it's a fun series. I mean, the, part of the fun is of reading the shadow in these first uh, seven issues in the annual is getting that retro vibe from Shaken, which wasn't retro at the time, but is now, you know, all of the references that he makes to, you know, like punk music and nuclear bombs and all of the sort of like eighties plot lines and, and so on are, are a lot of fun to revisit. And then in Helfer, I mean, the Sienkiewicz art is great to look at the storylines, not so, fun to read but there's some great stuff along the way i mean like you know in the annual all the commentary on like um you know like that thinly veiled l ron hubbard character yep you know that's basically the scientologist and so there's you know he does some really interesting things there's that there's that moment in the annual where they do that kind of like 
it was almost like anticipating what Alan Moore would do later on with his image stuff and with his, you know, with doing those kind of like that retro comic or not retro comic, yeah. but that kind of, um, yeah, the fake weird strange strange science science thing, with yeah. the coming of the Adam man. I mean, there's fun little stuff like that. That's maybe like, you know, ahead of its time and interesting that seventh issue is just a great standalone issue even if you have no interest in reading the shadow it's a it's a really good tight 22 page story it's you know a great got great marshall rogers kyle baker art um so i mean there's a lot there's a lot to recommend here at the same time i really don't feel like any of it is necessary to appreciating what he and kyle baker do in the latter half of the series. <laughs> Looking forward to talking about that with you. Thanks for doing this, Eric. All right. Oh, thank you.